Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Welcome back, dear listeners. I have a very special guest today, a dear friend, a mentor, and a powerhouse of a man. Brett Jones is very passionate about enduring and lasting relationships. He's the co-creator for Relationship Warriors, an international organization that operates in the United States and Australia. My wife and I had the pleasure of taking his seminars in Australia and here in the U.S., He has shown hundreds of men and women a new communication code and language that is appropriate for this decade. He's also assisted hundreds of couples to renew and restore their relationships. Brett is an entrepreneur, a powerful one for that matter, a writer. His book, Awaken, is available on Amazon. And he is someone that I love discussing ADHD with and also the importance of the presence of masculinity in a household when raising children. So please welcome, I'm excited and honored to have Brett Jones. Thank you, Roman. As always, so good to be here. It is my pleasure, and I'll tell you why. Because not only are you a great friend, but also a mentor who uh, uh, has pretty much saved my marriage. Um, and uh, I'm, I, I, I know we're not talking about marriages right now, although we will be talking about family. Uh, yes. but, I, but I will put some links in the show notes for... Uh, for parents to see the kind of work you do. That's very powerful. Um, I, I, I just, again, I'm so thankful for it. So not only thank you for being here, but thank you for saving our marriage. My pleasure, always. <laughs> so we're here to talk about ADHD. And I know you have your own experience with it and, and a, 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 certainly a point of view that I love and embrace. And I want to just start out with a simple question. For you, uh, what is ADHD? For me, in my experience, I've got an older son uh, who was diagnosed with ADHD and went down the whole route of, you know, taking medication, et cetera, to correct it. So I've got both personal experience and professional experience um, with it. But from an overall perspective, ADHD is just another way of perceiving the world. It's just another way that uh, I think in our education system, in our cultures now, and, you know, culture now worldwide tends to be merging together. Certainly over the last 100 years, you can see it when it comes to uh, intimate relationships and how men and women interact around the world. Uh, Culturally, it's the same. And I see the same thing, you know, having occurred with the education system that we've been educated into this way of viewing what intelligence is and what you need to be successful in life. And in my experience, the ADHD perspective on life is not recognised within that dynamic. And therefore, it's shoved to one side and said, well, that's not normal. And I think as we expand our awareness and we expand our experience of human behaviour, there is no such thing as normal. You know, people talk about behaviours like um, uh, bipolar as an example. Well, the reality is everybody gets happy and everybody gets sad. When we go, uh, they're bipolar, so they get manic and they get depressed. 
But that's just on a scale and a range of natural and normal human behaviour. We all have been manic at sometimes about something. And people develop um, a response to reality, you know, how we perceive the world. And we come up with um, defences against the pain that we all inevitably feel uh, in this reality. You know, we all want perfect love and we all want perfect attention and validation. Well, we don't get it. That's just the reality of living. And there are other things that we would like to get, and when we don't get them, there is pain. So we come up with behaviours that are meant to minimise or downplay that pain. And ADHD, you know, for a want of a description of a set of behaviours that people do, is merely just another response uh, in an attempt to cope with reality and minimise pain. I love that. It's so interesting because I recently just recorded an episode uh, and asking the question, is ADHD possibly just a coping mechanism, mm. right? Because I had also realized that in, in you know, as I've been studying uh, addiction and coping mechanisms, you know, yeah. what, what are we coping from, right? Like you said, the pain, the emotional pain or the inability to be alone with ourselves, right? or boredom, which is kind of a, a facet of that. And so it's very interesting that you mentioned the same thing. So maybe we can dive a little deeper on that. Like, uh, what is a coping mechanism? Yeah, so I think there are two perspectives you can look at for that. One is the spiritual route where you go down the ancient spiritual texts. And the other is more the more modern psychology <laughs> in terms of you know, what is pain, how do we react? So, but I think they they also tend to merge. If you go the Freudian route and, and you look at, you know, us coping uh, with life, then in both paths, you look at it and go, okay, so we come into this universe, we come out of a mother's womb, and there is immediate um, awareness and response to, to pain. And the human mechanism, the body and mind and spirit that we exist in does not like pain. It prefers pleasure, clearly. So then when there's pain, it's how do I deal with that pain? And pain's a very interesting thing. You know, pain is obviously a physical sensation, but it's also um, an emotional sensation. And I've done a lot of study into and had personal experiences of pain and pain can be something that we can use to improve. So we have a, a particular uh, event that we run called Warrior Man Crucible. And in some respects, we use physical endurance and pain as a transformative thing because we think we have limits of where our pain capacity is. But the reality is you can stretch those limits. Like I've read stories of, you know, um, U.S., um, soldiers being captured in Vietnam and, and the torture that they had to go through and the, and the way in which they came up with mechanisms to cope with it or be crushed by it. And, you know, there's a lot of literature, modern literature uh, around that. So when we talk about a coping mechanism at the most basic level, it's like I wake up into this reality and I realise that not all my needs are going to be met. And the moment that happens, that moment of awareness or consciousness of that, there is immediately some response to that. 
And there are many systems. And one of the most um, the favorite of mine is called the Enneagrams, which comes out of the um, mystic Sufi uh, tribe, which is part of the Islamic uh, tradition and religion. And they came up with like nine different personality types, nine responses, if you like, to pain in the world. And each of those has a core wound. So uh, for the number one, it's I need to be perfect. If I'm perfect, then there'll be no pain. Number two is if I give to everybody, there'll be no pain. Number three is if I show up the right way and I'm uh, seen as successful, then I'm going to avoid pain. Uh, four, if I'm special, and, and so on around the range, right? Mm -hmm. So coping mechanisms when we talk about ADHD is a, a way of going, well, well, one, I don't want to learn. I don't learn in the normal way, uh, the normal way inside a classroom set environment of how I'm supposed to learn. And in certainly my experience, you know, over 30 years of now working inside human behaviour, people learn uh, through the five main senses. That's our uh, interface to reality, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, smell and taste. That's how we feel and know the world. Well, when you get to ADHD, the way their brain functions, the way their spirit, their mind, the whole holistic approach to how they interact with, with reality is um, doesn't fit into a classroom environment. Hence, they get categorised as being different or not normal. And it really is just, you know, like I, I see so many people at all levels come through our events and, and some of them are very kinesthetic. So they tend to be um, blue collar or tradespeople. And in that respect, they can be looked down on against the professionals. But the professionals could never do what the tradespeople do. They can never strip down an engine and put it back together. They'd rather pay someone to do it. You could learn it, and equally, a tradesperson could easily learn um, the mathematical skills and the understanding of finances and things like that. So, but we tend to obviously focus into one area of life and one area of how we learn. And that should be okay in our culture. Yeah. It should be recognised in our culture, right? It should be, yeah, that's okay if you learn that way and uh, let's create an education system uh, and a work system and a way of living in this world. That, of course, doesn't happen. So then I think if you're a parent of a, of a child that has that mode of learning, then you need to be very adaptive against the cultural norms of, of what they have to fit into and how do you assist them to work through that. And then you can go on the other end of the, of the spectrum. You know, uh, one of my other sons, uh, he has uh, dyslexia and dyscalculia, which tends to get better as you get up into your teens. Uh, you tend to be able to fit more into the system. But... You know, there's no way he wants to be a lawyer or an accountant. He wants to be an actor. <laughs> That's his way of expressing that natural interface with the world is to more shift into that more creative um, mode of, of one, creating a career, two, earning income, and three, existing in the world. 
And, you know, as parents, we've certainly encouraged that with him. We've given him all the skills and the backup and things that are necessary to help him be successful uh, in that area. And when I talk about success, what I mean is to be happy. Yeah. You know, I think as parents, yes, you want your kids to be successful. Yes, you want them to have the, the nice things, the finer things in life. So there are two sides to that. You know, we've encouraged him on the creative side. But I've also encouraged him to understand investment and how you invest in property and how you invest in stocks and shares and things like that. And we play around with that so he understands the mechanics of it and understands that you don't, you don't need to be a mathematician to be a good investor. There are just yeah. a few basic concepts that you need to understand about how that system works. So I think, you know, if, if we're looking at either yourself as being ADHD, and I, I would say, you know, I perhaps have some elements of that. Um, and, you know, certainly Marie, you could look at her and go, well, she's got some elements of dyslexia in her as well. So is it hereditary? Like, is it genetic or is it behavioural? I think a lot of things that, you know, people categorise as genetic um, until you get down to the actual uh, science of it and you really can categorise, well, there's this particular gene and if you've got that particular gene, then you definitely are going to be this because a lot of genes are turned on and off. Exactly. By environment. Yep. So certainly I think there's a bigger slant towards uh, environment. We certainly show up uh, with a personality. We certainly show up in the world um, coming into it with various genetic behaviours and things. But on top of that, there is a lot overwritten with experience, with our role models, with the culture that we grow up in. Yeah. See that yeah. With, um, you know, surveys around twins and things like that. It's interesting because you made me think of, uh, you know, recently got to interview Peter Bregan, who's a psychologist and he's, He's a, he's a force when it comes to mental disorders and medication. He really advocates for, you know, uh, children not to take uh, uh, those powerful drugs at, at, at a young age. Besides mm. that, though, he had a really interesting theory. He said to me, he called it, I believe he called it like a, a father attention deficit syndrome. Uh, you know, the lack of a father of a father figure, a strong masculine, certain presence in the household. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, you work with couples, you restore marriages and relationships. What, how would you say is that related, right? The presence of a, or the absence of a, of a masculine uh, role model in the household, how could they, how could that affect a child, especially a, a boy, right? Most uh, kids diagnosed with ADHD are boys or majority. So what do you think about that? Look, I think there's definitely a dynamic and a very strong one that's there for that. There's been a huge amount um, of studies done around, um, you know, disconnection disorder with mothers uh, and certainly with fathers as well. But I think there's a, there's a new dynamic that's come out culturally over the last 100 years, certainly since World War I and World War II when there was a major shift in how men showed up. You know, we, we tend to forget now, we don't even recognise that we trained an entire um, generation or virtually two generations of men. So the men that were in World War II, their fathers were generally in World War I. 
So the two generation of men that were trained on a scale we've never seen before. Sure, we've had a lot of wars and skirmishes you know, around the world uh, consistently, but never on this scale uh, did we have two generations of men trained to pick up guns and go into a battlefield and kill other men. And there's a great scene in Saving Private Ryan where Tom Hanks is a lieutenant that's leading this platoon on a particular mission. And he's a school teacher by profession. And here he is leading this group of men to go into the battlefield and kill other men. And you have the normal, um, you know, movie thing of, yeah, he's a big, brave man, and they're all going out and they're killing and they're winning and all this uh, script. But you get to a point in the movie where they just um, fought against some Germans who are in some foxholes and they've managed to win and they've killed them all. And um, the other guys have been very macho and, and all that. And yeah, we got them. And in the scene, Hanks moves away from them and goes into this other uh, foxhole and he just breaks down in tears. And he cries, just like sobbing tears. And then he pulls himself together and then he goes back out again. And we would call it PTSD now. But after World War II, we had no such term for it. We didn't even recognise that that could even happen. But a generation of men came back shut down, emotionally closed off to having had cope, to cope with what they'd just been through. Meanwhile, the women at home, they had to step up and deal with everything. So they took on the emotional burden. And they, when their men, if, the, if their man came back, they saw he was different. So they sort of supported him through that. They carried him as well. And then the next generation modelled that. They watched that behaviour. And we don't do what our parents tell us to do. We do what we see them doing. So they modelled that behaviour and took it onto themselves. So now we've got this dynamic um, where women don't know how to surrender to a man anymore and men don't know how to like in, a, in the best sense of the word, and I don't mean control, but I mean take a woman. There's a post I, I put up recently. If I can just read a little bit of it, Roman. Please. It might illustrate it. So a man yearns for a woman's surrender. A woman yearns to surrender, to let go of control and to be taken. It's instinctual. It's a dance. It's a collaboration. This dance deepens their love, their attraction, and their passion. Her surrender is a gift to herself. It's a gift of love, and it's a gift to her man. Just like in a dance, one leads and the other follows. There's no forced equality, no need to be the same, because there's a knowing that each of the roles in this dance is equally important for the dance to be the piece of art that captivates you. It doesn't mean he's better and she's secondary or weaker. Her trust empowers him, inspires him, motivates him and lifts him up. He feels into her needs and her desires and leads accordingly. She surrenders to his direction because she trusts herself in the man she chose. And she trusts him that his direction includes and considers her. It's what's best for both of them. But here's the thing. In today's modern times, we want everything to be equal. And in the name of that equality, 
The beauty of the dance is becoming extinct. Our natural way is succumbing to unnatural expectations. Equal does not mean the same. There is a place for equality, but recognising the differences brings the dance. And it looks different in your relationship. If you push for sameness in your relationship, it has the opposite effect of what you think it is supposed to be. Men, it's safe to take the lead. She wants you to. She wants to surrender to you. The music is playing. Your partner is waiting. It's time to dance. Nice. And I think those words express the dilemma that we find ourselves in, that we have this expectation, this cultural expectation, which should be the same. It's going to be equal. That she's going to react the same way that I react as a man. Nothing is further from the truth. When you dive down underneath that cultural BS, you get to a point where you understand that we have very specific intimate needs as men and women that have to be accommodated. And when they're not accommodated, you get to a point in the relationship where the relationship is going to fail. And I think the same applies with ADHD, that there's this cultural expectation that our children should show up the right way. And when they don't, there's something wrong. And therefore, we should give them a tablet that's going to make it right. It's almost the same as we have with, you know, depression as an example. Um, where, you know, if I'm feeling a bit blue or a bit down, I go to the doctor, the first thing that's going to happen is I go, well, there's something wrong. Here's a tablet. Well, anyone that's ever been depressed and has gone to the GP and, and got, um, gone to the medical professional and, and got a tablet um, has found that it doesn't take away the underlying emotional problem that exists and the reason why they're feeling the way they're feeling. It, it provides a raft. And sometimes that raft is necessary. I'm not saying that, you know, tablets don't have their place. What I'm saying is we need a more holistic approach. And again, I think the same thing applies to ADHD. I think you can just get categorised into this. Here's some Ritalin. This is going to fix it, which it doesn't. It temporarily creates a, a raft or a bridge of attention so they can fit into the system. But it also, on the side of that, doesn't take away the underlying problem, which is like this huge amount of energy they want to use and express in some way that they're not allowed to express sitting inside this little seat inside the classroom where you're meant to sit and be quiet. You know, I was at a, um, we're doing a, a course with our team yesterday over the weekend uh, on the Enneagrams. And some of the team members you would categorise as, you know, a couple of them might have ADHD. And you could see, like, they just don't want to sit in the chair. They got up and sat at the back of the room. They went and sat down again. They, um, you know, had to move around in the chair. The, they just, that does not suit them as a learning environment. So as you well know, in our learning environment, in our events, we cater for that. We're constantly moving, creating movement, making sure people aren't sitting in a seat because we're aware that a lot of people can't do that and don't want to do that and, and it actually stifles their learning yeah yeah absolutely and and i love hearing that again because i totally agree that while we cannot change the entire system you know overnight just being aware of it that there is a system in place and it it has been uh, uh painted with the brush of normal right normalizing everybody yeah. putting in boxes and labels and you know, so we have control over everything because of our fear of 
uh, you know, what are the unique beings going to do that are that are outside of the system? Are they going to be a threat? Are they going to be, you know, a detriment to our society? Um, so what can we do on a, on a on a daily basis? Right. And before we get into that a little bit, you know, maybe there's a few things that, that you can recommend in, in, in families, relationships with children. But I just want to uh, talk about, again, the masculine uh, presence. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I've learned from your course, you know, in being in your courses is that, and I, I recognize this now about myself, that I was not fully present as a father for the early years of my son, right? In my marriage, but also in my parenting. And I believe that had a huge impact on our son, who again, you, I believe, has a coping mechanism, mechanism of being busy, distracted, go, 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 because it's unsafe to be still and present and with himself because he didn't get that uh, modeled by myself. Yes. It's a, obviously a big topic and a controversial topic. Um, you know, there's so much talk about toxic masculinity instead of a lot of talk about how as men do we now show up in the world that we've created? Yeah. So if you think about it, Roman, up until yours and my generation, Men were at war. Men were what? At war. Mm. They're involved in war in some way. It was pretty much about survival. Now we've got to a point where we're beginning to move beyond uh, survival and being at war. So what is a man? How does a man show up in the home? How does a man show up at work? Well, most men would prefer just to show up at work because they're using the model from the 1950s and 1960s. You know, I go to work, I can provide, I come home, I put my feet up and she will take care of the rest. Gentlemen, if you're listening to this podcast, that model of communication, that model of a man is a recipe for divorce. It's virtually, if you run that model, you're virtually guaranteeing you're going to end up are divorced. And if you don't end up divorced, you'll end up in a very unhappy, dead marriage where there is real, there is no real intimacy or communication going on. Why? Because it ignores the underlying needs that we have. Like I'm talking about the dance, that she needs this presence. Our children need this masculine presence that we can bring inside the house. But if we're not clear about that, we're not clear about guiding, um, being the lead, guiding our, our children. How do we want them to show up? What um, values do we want our children to possess? Now, you can tell them as much as you like to tidy up their room. That doesn't mean they're going to. But if they see you being tidy, they see you making your bed every morning, that may not cut in for the first 18 years, but I guarantee you, you'll see it cut in when those behaviors and that conditioning that we put them through cuts in as they now move into the the roles or the archetypes of parent father or mother and you'll see those behaviors kick in i've i've experienced it myself personally you know i still see myself folding my clothes like my father used to do Mm. and it's ironic you know you see yourself at you know 63 years of age doing what your father did because you witnessed it you modeled it that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. And you want to pass those behaviours on to your children. But you have to be very, one, aware about it. So you have to be a conscious and aware person and parent. 
And you have to recognize as a man, we have a range of emotions. In fact, there are three and a half thousand words in English language to describe emotions. Everything from unhappy, sad, worried, concerned, anxious, depressed, up to uh, feeling great, ecstatic, um, sensational, amazing, orgasmic as, as the range. But most of us tend to use this very narrow cultural range that we've been conditioned into. And as men, we've got no concept now, Roman, of what the masculine state of certainty is. And, and people think this is all very airy and bullshit and what the hell is he talking about? But this is actual science. Like we can take a, we can take a blood sample and measure yours and my testosterone levels. And then with the right training, we can learn to shift into this masculine state and our testosterone levels would instantaneously go up by 40%. And what's more interesting is that if we're in an intimate relationship with our female partner, then her oxytocin levels will increase by 30% directly because we've just shift state. So there's this underlying uh, physiological dynamic that is, makes this absolutely true. I even did this, I love the United States because they do really weird experiments in the universities over there. Like it's just, I don't know where they get this stuff from. <laughs> but they, um, there was a bunch of women and they asked them to smell men's T-shirts. And they asked them to, you know, tell the researchers which T-shirts they prefer, which smell they prefer to the pheromones. Mm -hmm. And then they did DNA tests on the uh, wearers of the men who were wearing the T-shirts and also the women and, and their surrounding families. And what they found is that the T-shirts the women picked, the DNA of the men closely matched the DNA of their fathers. Mm -hmm. So it's not just at a behavioural level, it's at that underlying physiological level, the pheromones leading us to things that we are not aware of or don't see. And when it comes to a man leading in a relationship, there is a dynamic that we've now lost. Your bro is not going to show you this. Your church is not going to show you this. The government's not going to show you, university or school, because they're not aware of it. But it's right there in front of you if you just open your eyes. Like we've got a 60% divorce rate in the United States and Australia right now. And that's not even taking into account the fact of relationships where those statistics of breakup don't show up. I personally think it's a lot higher than that. Like relationships are failing at an unprecedented rate. And we had a 10% divorce rate prior to World War I. And second relationships fail at a 73% level. And third marriages um, fail at a 93% level. So if people don't learn, if they don't understand this dynamic, it just literally gets worse. Yeah. So why are we talking about that here amongst a you know ADHD family podcast? Because the devastation, Roman, that's caused through divorce is massive. As parents, we tend to justify why we've left a relationship. We have good, solid reasons why. And I see, unfortunately, far too many people now going, I've got a problem in the relationship. What's my solution? Oh, my solution is divorce. Or they go and try marriage guidance counselling. 
which doesn't work because we focus in on the problem, not the solution. And then they are getting divorced. But there is a far better solution, and that is to learn how to communicate to our partner and understand their needs in a completely new and different way. And when we do that, the impact that we're making onto our children. So we're talking about coping. I don't care who you are. If you're a parent, you can't see the emotional devastation divorce is causing. You're telling yourself a lie. Yeah. Because there's huge emotional turmoil. Some kids end up uh, becoming the perfect uh, and put themselves child and put themselves under enormous amount of pressure to perform and, and be great for the family. Someone else becomes the uh, peacemaker or peacekeeper, trying to keep the families together. I mean, children, and this is fact, like this is proven by research, psychological research, that some children will become sick. So the parents have something to focus on, even if they're divorced. Oh, because my child is so sick, we, we need to come together and focus on them. Yeah. Other children will become drama queens to get attention. So there are many things that come out of the impact of, of divorce. And the impact that we have is, and this is not to make us feel guilty or to blame ourselves. It's merely to recognize and go, okay, this is what's happening. How can we do our best to minimize this or avoid it, in fact? And again, with ADHD, I think it's the same thing. Clearly the dynamic in a family when there is not um, a leader where she has stepped up and she's leading, even though she doesn't want to lead emotionally and carry the emotional load in the family, and he's not. There is this certain dynamic that goes on between the parents, which the children are witnessing and, and watching. And when they witness and watch it, it's for them, it's like, oh, holy crap, who's in charge here? Well, mum's pushing up, she's stressed as hell. Dad's like fighting with her because, you know, he's not stepping up. So where, where do I fit in, in, into this? How do I help them? Or how do I run away from this? Yeah. And as you well know, ADHD, a part of that is a blocking out of reality, a blocking out of what can be painful in my world. And you go to the other end of the, of the spectrum, obviously with autism and things like that, you see the same human behavior dynamic, this blocking out of reality to cope even to the, to the um, you know, the light sensitivity or the sound sensitivity. Yeah. Blocking out. So again, it's a natural human behavior taken to an extreme to cope. That's, that's why I thought the other day that, you know, when we say ADHD is a coping mechanism, it's not so much the thing that was invented to be called ADHD, but the behaviors yes. that we can see, right? The observed behaviors our coping mechanisms in order not to face the pain, in order not to be bored, not to be yes. emotionally heavy and so forth, right? And then the brain yes. can only do uh, either develop, meaning learn, or it can deal with those, those emotions and pains, but it can't do both at the same time. Yeah. And again, part of that came out of this transition for psychology to become an established um, part of the medical community, right? So that happened again over the last 100 years where psychologists were seen as quacks and they were looking to become established within the medical community. 
And there's nothing wrong with psychology. Like both Marie and I, you know, have um, you know qualifications in that area. But what's become a cultural phenomenon is that this classification of human behavior as being a illness or a medical sickness that needs to be treated with a tablet. And again, I'm not saying there is not at times uh, an opportunity to use those to facilitate um, a growth or a change in behavior uh, to something that functions more appropriately for the person. So I, I personally do not see any human behavior as abnormal. Yeah. And what's including, what... sorry, Roman, including self harm. In yeah. any human behavior, there is a reason why people are doing that. Yeah, I agree with you. And what's amazing to me is that we have suspended the Socratic way of, of, advancing as humanity we stopped asking questions right because if you keep asking questions and that's what i'm doing with this project if you say okay they're behaving this way but why how come yes and you keep digging deeper but what happened is actually they've closed the loop by saying well they behave that way because they have adhd yes but, but you can't that part was made up so it can't be that that there's the cause yes i, I agree totally because uh, in that uh, loop of logic you get to that point where you go okay this is the behavior what's the cause of this behavior and then you go oh, it's adhd well no that's what i'm talking about right we've got this psychological thing now whacking this label on and going well that's the solution that's not a solution that's just the label a word that describes the behavior now yeah. let's get to underneath that what has happened and it happens very clearly from three main areas. Happens from our culture, from the role models that we've got growing up, and from the events that have happened to us that have impacted us to alter our natural behavior. Our environment creates that, as it has for millions of years of evolution. And when we start to look at ADHD or any human behavior as, okay, that's the label, that's what they're doing. Now let's look at why. And then if we can alter those things for them, particularly if we're talking about children, we can alter those things for them, we can help them more adapt. Like one of the things I've seen um, with people that have dyslexia or dyscalculia is they're going through the normal school system with no other ex in external input to that dynamic then what you can predict with 100% degree of accuracy is they, by the time they come out of school, will have low self-esteem. Yeah. Guaranteed. So uh, awareness of that is, okay, as parents, how do Marie and I alter that? Well, there's a technique called reframing, meaning that how we frame up something in our own internal world will then create a behavior. If I see something as good or bad, I'm gonna react differently. Mm -hmm. So if we can paint um, this lecture as something good, such as the fact that um, Einstein had it, um, Scher had it, um, many famous actors and uh, producers and movie directors like Steven Spielberg uh, have it. Yep, Richard Branson, right? Richard Branson as a businessman, and yet they're all highly successful in their area. 
So if that's the case, how can it be something negative? It just means you're not fitting into the school system. And that reframing for him completely took away any self-esteem issues. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. I mean, you know, we always say, our movement is for parents with children with ADHD, because as an adult, if you're diagnosed with ADHD, you can process and, and you know, get through a diagnosis and you can kind of shrug it off in a way and be like, oh, good. Now I can move forward. Maybe I'll take some meds. You know, you manage your life for the most part. But as a six year old, for example, in our case, you yes. they can't process of the word disorder or what they hear is I'm, I'm, I'm not normal. Something's wrong with my brain. I'm less than the other kids, you know, and like you said, now you put them through the school system with that frame of mind already, there is a, it, it's a recipe for a low self-confidence. Absolutely. And when you've got a dynamic in the family, the parents are fighting or being in a disagreement or even not fighting where they're just silent and sulky towards each other. How does a child cope with that? Well, there's one clear mechanism that unfortunately there has not been a lot of sound research done into. But clearly we can see from the limited research that has been done that children will shut down to that yeah. as a coping mechanism to deal with it. So if you're, you know, I've seen certainly in our events uh, numerous times now, when you've been doing it for 30 years, there's only so many ways a human being can cope with a certain environment that they're existing in. Then you start to see patterns in that. So if you grow up in an environment with a lot of screaming and shouting, you're invariably going to go to school and you're still traumatized from what's going on that morning when you left. So when you're in school, you, you can't focus. Yeah. So it becomes very, very natural to come to the conclusion, both from the teacher and the student, that I must be dumb. I can't learn. And the moment you adopt that belief, that now becomes your reality. So then yeah. you start adopting behaviours that confirm that belief back to you. You're always distracted now in class. You're always disruptor in, in the classroom. So I think one of the reasons that research hasn't been done into this is that, you know, people, researchers and others who don't have a great deal of emotional intelligence, to be honest with you, are like, well, I, I don't want to do the research in case it makes people feel, parents feel really guilty. You know, I don't want to label parents and they feel really guilty about well, it's not a question of guilt. It's a question of responsibility. If my behavior is causing that as a parent, I want to know that. And I want to modify my behavior with my partner so I'm not causing that. Yeah. If we're all conscious or aware. Well, that's going to take conscious parenting, right? And, and we were discussing that today that I believe the solution to most of the mental disorders that we label our children with in the future will be the shift into conscious parenting. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. And you know, what is great to see is there, there is a lot more people, a lot more parents realizing that as human beings, we're going to experience trauma. We're going to experience things that we go through. And the majority of the population want to stick their head in the sand and, and not understand their behavior that percentage is lessening. Yes, absolutely. It is, it has been a mass hypnosis for, for hundreds of years. And, you know, like you said, coming back from war, PTSD, tapping it down, 
coping mechanism is alcohol or even suicide, the ultimate coping mechanism, right? Be done Born, with the pain. Drugs, sex. Yep. If we're talking about men particularly, mm-hmm. that will generally be the poison of choice they'll go to, to be able to deal with um, that unfair conditioning they've been through. Yeah. And, and the lack of fulfillment then invariably they feel. And then when they feel that in the relationship, that, of course, filters down to the children. So I, I think as you're becoming certainly, well, as you're aware and certainly making other people aware, ADHD, I think, is a byproduct of this overall cultural shift that we have to make. If we're going to hand down a better world to our children, behaviourally, you know, I think as Gandhi and many others have said, if you want the change, you have to be that change yourself. And, and that's where the change to start. Because when we change our behaviour, when we become more conscious, we want a more conscious world. We want to see the government start to take action. We're going to put them under pressure to, to do something about climate change, to shift to electric vehicles. Now, whether climate change is real or not, or what side of the argument we want to jump onto that, Um, The question is, is the world better with petrol cars or electric cars? Well, that depends on electric cars, what the ultimate source of the energy is that you're putting into the cars, right? But certainly the world's going to be better without petrol emissions. Yeah. No matter how you cut it. So when you come down to some sort of logical, aware, conscious conclusion, it's not hard to get on the same page with people. Yeah. And, and that's that's our hopes, right, is to we are really uh, speaking to uh, conscious parents or parents who want to be more conscious or who are ready to really yes. uh, look at it all from a totally different point of view. And, and recently uh, uh, we were talking to some parents who said, look, um, maybe raising a child isn't about actually like parenting isn't about raising a child. Parenting is about transforming ourselves so we can allow our kids to become who they are. I think that's definitely a large, large part. I think there's two elements to parenting. One is, as you just said, that element. The other is to be aware of human behavior as a parent and recognize consistently as children go through the different stages of development, what input as the parent do we need to make that is going to help our children cope the best without taking on... um, coping strategies that will work short term but have massive unpleasant and unfortunate uh, results for them yeah yeah and as a parent if we're aware of that you know we can guide them through how do we maintain their self-esteem the whole way through how do we make them resilient you know if we're the helicopter parent as an example uh, we're going to disempower children they're not they're not going to have any resilience Excuse me. And that is is a great shame because I see a lot of this generation coming through now that don't have resilience. They can't cope with things when they don't go how they think they should. Yeah. That's a big one. That's a big one because, again, what's then going to be the coping mechanism, right? If they can't do what needs to be done, they will turn to food, sugar, video games, you know, eventually teenagers. Yeah, sitting and still living at home with their mother in, in the lounge room, you know, playing video games. Yeah. So 
if we, let's say for a moment, we both agree that uh, ADHD uh, is a label for observed behaviors. They call it symptoms, but it's really observed behaviors. And um, observed behaviors in that in that case, we would have to ask, why does a child behave that way? We would, mm -hmm. then, to, we would then get to a coping mechanism. What are they coping from? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that, is that grammatically correct? Coping from or coping with coping? Why do they have a coping mechanism, right? What, yeah, what why for? do they have a coping mechanism? Well, part of it, like I said, is going to be um, culture, which is the school system. Like walk into that and clearly, you know, where we're talking about developmental stages, well, one developmental stage for a child is um, I'm initially with my parents in the home and I feel loved and I feel cared for hopefully most of the time. Uh, then I come out of that and I now start mixing with my peers. Well, the natural development stage is I'm going to compare myself with the peers. Am I better, worse? Yep, mm -hmm. all the same. And then we fit into our little groups within the school system. You know, the innies and the outies and the nerds and et cetera, et cetera. We fit into those different groups. Mm -hmm. And then I'm comparing myself. But if I don't, if I don't have the intelligence to remember stuff, which is pretty much what the whole school system is about, right? Yeah. Like you know, one of my children, one of my daughters, um, basically has um, a photographic memory. So in we have in Australia what's called the ATAR score when you finish school, which is a compilation of uh, exam results. So she got um, 99.3, right? virtually a perfect score. And she did a double degree in law and commerce at university. Because a lot of the system is, can you remember the stuff? Can you exactly. take it in, spew it back out in the way that is required? Yep, yep. And if you can do that, you're going to get fantastic scores. I always said that. I said that the current school system, if you're really good at it, you get uh, a good grades. It doesn't mean you're actually intelligent. It just means you have a good memory, or in this case, photographic. You can spit it back up as needed. And it really doesn't mean you're intelligent. Absolutely. But coming back onto your question, like what is, what is a coping mechanism? So for them, it's like, well, I can't do that. Therefore, there must be something wrong with me. And boom, the moment any child says that in any context, but yeah. certainly the cultural context of school, the moment you say that, now there is a requirement and a need for coping mechanism because what you just experienced is emotional pain. I don't want that pain. How am I going to cope with that? Yeah. And shutting down, moving away from that uh, is a coping mechanism. So we're not saying, you know, we can't avoid trauma as humans, we're going to have trauma. But what I'm hearing is that, you know, it's our job to essentially prepare, raise our children with the, 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 the strength and the courage to uh, process any kind of stress. I mean, trauma is really ultimately extreme stress, right? How to process it, how to, uh, in the face of the storm, how to stand strong and continue giving it our best shot, right? No matter what. And then we may avoid uh, children having such extreme forms of coping mechanisms. I mean, we, we all use coping mechanisms here and there, right? But uh, so it doesn't become as part of our identity, part of our like behaviors, main behaviors, right? Which then gets labeled as ADHD. Yeah, they, they form into a coping mechanism that we'll then use pretty much for the rest of our life. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that becomes the problem. That becomes the issue. So now I, let me ask you then, what's the difference? Or I would like to explore with you just for a few minutes. What's the difference between a coping mechanism and addiction? Is ADHD potentially an addiction to not be well, present? I think they're behaviorally, when you take the, the labels off them, they're the same thing. Like an addiction is a behavior set up to cope with something that's going on in your life. If you look at any addiction, whether it's, it's drugs or porn or money or work, um, it's a cope, it's a way of um, transference, you know, and using the psychological term, it's a transference of something that I can't deal with is something that I can deal with. And that for some people may sound strange, but you know, if you're addicted to crack cocaine, it literally is like, well, I can deal with that. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't deal with the fact that my father has rejected me my whole life, but I can deal with the crack cocaine. Yeah. Because that at least I can do. It numbs me out, takes me away from the pain of, of that, no matter what I seem to do behaviorally, I never seem to get his acceptance. Now that may or may not be a reality for the person. You know, their, their father may or may not be uh, favoring one of the other siblings. That this could be a perception. But if that's the perception that they have in their reality, then that becomes the coping mechanism to cope with it. So it almost so seems like coping mechanism is very much the same thing, right? Right. It seems like the the addiction here would be seeking attention. Yes. In a negative way, correct. But right. using the, the drugs as the form of that, then the parent has to come and rescue them. And it's almost a bit like, and, and the medication is almost is almost a bit like taking a druggie to rehab. You know, uh, yes. putting them on meds and like, okay, now you're at least not going to seek attention that could turn into a negative thing. But we're not addressing again, and we're just speculating here. But we're, we're, the the real part is we're not addressing again the the reason right the cause why is that child behaving that way yes and as parents we have a responsibility there as you said before to look at our own behavior and go okay what impact uh, does that have because as parents like i said before there are three main ways any human being is going to be impacted culture role models and events now Parents, you know, we try and minimize the events as much as possible. And I see a lot of good parents doing that, which is fantastic. But a lot of parents won't do the other one. You know, they won't look at their own behavior and how that is actually impacting the child because self-observation, self-awareness, of course, is one of the most difficult areas that we can step into or go to. And then you've got the other cultural impact that we need to become aware of as well. So I see a lot of parents doing number three, which is events or some child's being men at at school or I've fallen over and cut my knee or you didn't win that competition, parents will address that, but they don't address the other two. Yeah. Yeah, there's a uh, somewhat of an ignorance in our society towards the effects that, um, you know, us parents as role models have on our children's behavior. You know, we, we, we think we need to be the disciplinary and make sure they don't they, they yes. stay on the right track for their schooling and career. But other than that, yes. you know, we do our own thing and we think, oh, it, it's, it has nothing to do with how the child behaves. Yes. And I, I think the other trap that parents fall into, Roman, in my experience, is that they think the child needs them as a friend. Child doesn't need you as a friend. Your child needs you as a parent and a place 
they can come to for good, solid advice and they need you there as a role model that demonstrates that advice in your own behaviour. Mm. Not telling them what to do and not doing it yourself, which many of us do. You should tidy your room and you walk into their bedroom and it's a mess. Yeah. You should be, why, why are you getting so angry for? Calm down. Don't speak to me that way. But then when you look at it, they speak to the child in exactly the same way. Children can be great mirrors for us, of course. The child you're having the most problem with in your relationship uh, with your children is probably the one that behaviourally, one, you don't want to see that they're like you, but two, the reality is they actually are like you. Yeah. Truth. Totally. My son is exactly like me or I'm exactly like him. It's a mirror. I mean, I can see it and it triggers me often. Mm. Uh, but I'm more aware now when to calm myself down, take a deep breath and realize, wait a minute, he's, he's not, you know, he's triggered too. So yeah. there's, it's not going to, we're not going to work this out by having trigger against trigger. No, no. And it, it's always a fine line. It's, it's like, um, you can't always be the calm, understanding, aware parent. There are times when you have to impose boundaries because they may just want to be lazy. They're human beings. Right. They're exactly like us. There are times they're going to go, well, I can't be about stuff doing that. I'm sorry. Don't want to do it. They're going to be unreasonable and in their ego and yeah. behaving not appropriately. And then as a parent, you have to in the moment, pull them into line. But then afterwards, I think particularly recognizing, you know, as we've discussed before, the two different types of children, interior reference and exterior referenced. Yep. A child that is wanting to please is very easy to influence. A child that is much more independent and determined to have their own will is far harder to influence. Yes. And knowing how to deal with those two different models of a child is very, very important. Um, you know, the, the one who's very willful well, in that moment, you're going to have a clash of wills. But afterwards, when they've calmed down, you've got a quiet moment in the bedroom with them. And you have to explain to them why you're imposing that. What's the purpose? What's the reason behind that? And let them sit with it and think about it themselves and work it out themselves so they can see the reasonableness of it uh, for themselves. Yeah. Because if, if they feel like you're just imposing your will unreasonably, they're going to resist that all the time and they're going to end up with low self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah. And a strained relationship, right? Because we're going to be and a strained relationship. disconnected. Yeah. You're never going to be that place that they can come to and go, you know, dad, what, what, what do you think about this? What's your view on this? What's your opinion on this? Yeah, they're going to go to their peers who also had parents who weren't present and they're going to get advice there and we know how that's going to go. Yeah, yeah. And as parents, that's where we get confused between wanting to be their friend and their advisor. It's always advisor. We're not their friend. Yeah. They've got friends. They don't need another friend. You know, it drives me crazy when I hear people go, oh, you know, my mom, she's my best friend. And I'm going, wow, that's really unhealthy. Yeah. Really unhealthy because you need somebody else who's your best friend, not your mom. Your mom is meant to be there as a good advisor that you can go to. And she's brought you up in a way where as an independent human being who can cope with the world, you know there's always a safe place you can go back to. 
Yeah. Where I can get that good, solid advice. It doesn't mean I'm going to do it, but at least I can have that other perspective that's balanced. Yeah. Well said, well said. Well, we've uh, talked quite a, a bit about uh, ADHD and relationships. I think in closing, um, I want to just reflect on the one thing we talked about, which is this coping mechanism that children with ADHD behave a certain way because they're really trying to cope with much deeper issues. It's not yes. genetic. It's uh, partly genetic. It's not a brain disorder, meaning there's no medical tests to prove, you know, to diagnose ADHD. It's not because someone has ADHD. It's because of what's going on in the child's life or what has been going on or happened, you know, prenatal, during birth, after birth, early years. All those, all those combinations of things, definitely. Exactly. And so, uh, yeah, I just wanted to thank you, Brett, for being on the podcast. It, it's, it's a pleasure. Um, I, so many brilliant things you said and stuff we explored. I just, uh, I'm really grateful that our audience gets to hear what you have to say around this. Oh, look, thank you, Roman. It's always great to discuss these topics. You know, as you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about people not uh, falling to the default of what's normal, but looking beyond that for ourselves. I think, as you know, Buddha said, um, you know, don't don't listen to my advice. Go find out for yourself. And I think that's a great learning tool. We want to take in what other people say, but then we want to go and get other opinions and check it out for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I love this because that's kind of our philosophy as well. Like connect your own dots around ADHD. Don't yes, take my word for it. Don't take any even experts word for it because you know your child's best. And if you're going to uh, start becoming more conscious as a parent, if we do this as parents, then our children will transform. Yes. And when you put in the effort as a parent, you will, you will find the right way. There are many ways to the same point. And, uh, you know, that was Buddha's point about things, that um, there is not just one path to enlightenment. There are many, many paths to enlightenment. Uh, and you have to find your own way. And as a parent, I think that's great advice. Ultimately, trust your own gut feel. Listen to all the advice, get as much information as you can. But as a parent, you know in your heart what is best for your child. Yeah, I, I believe that. I believe that if we trust the resonance, right, because this movement isn't for anyone, isn't for everyone. Uh, ideally, it'd be great if everyone had a child with ADHD would say, oh, let me reconsider what the, the, the narrative, the mainstream narrative says. But it's not for everyone, and we get that. But for yeah. those of you parents who are interested in, in uh, shifting your, your perspective on, on ADHD, I hope you come back and listen to us again. Again, uh, Brett, thank you so much for being on the show. It was an absolute pleasure. pleasure.